Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life like a new job, anniversary or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a thousand original artworks from everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass on the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle, the Royal Pavilion and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% of major exhibitions, including the British Museum, Tate, the V&A and many more. Membership is just £73 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere 45 and for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fav when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Just go to artfund.org slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am very excited to say that my guest today is one of the most brilliant authors in the world, the sensational Jessie Burton. Jessie is the author of three novels, The Miniaturist and The Muse, which are both published in 38 languages, and more recently, The Confession, which became an immediate Sunday Times bestseller this past autumn. And despite being nearly 500 pages long, it is a book I absolutely raced through in the space of two days, having been completely addicted to it. The Miniaturist and The Muse were Sunday Times number one bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers and Radio 4's Book at Bedtime. The Miniaturist went on to sell over a million copies in its year of publication and it was Christmas number one in the UK, National Book Awards Book of the Year and Waterstones Book of the Year 2014. And if you want to see it come to life, then don't miss the two-part miniseries that was on BBC One over Christmas in 2017. As a non-fiction writer, Jessie has written essays and reviews from the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Wall Street Journal, The Independent, Vogue and more, as well as short stories for Harper's Bazaar and Stylist. But the reason why I have asked Jessie to come on the podcast today, and we are at her home surrounded by Frida candles, lights, doorstops, mugs and everything, Jessie's even drinking from a Frida Kahlo <laughs> mug, is because a couple of years ago she wrote one of the most beautiful pieces of writing about one of her heroes, the late and great Frida Kahlo in conjunction with the spectacular V&A exhibition Making Herself Up. For this trip, she made the pilgrimage to the incredible Museo Frida Kahlo, also known as Casa Azul, in Mexico City, where she was exposed to where the late Frida Kahlo grew up and also passed away far too prematurely, aged 47 in 1954. Welcome to the podcast, Jessie. Thank you. What an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So fitting. So this piece of writing, I mean, didn't just transport me to Mexico City. It opened up who Frida Kahlo was, her identity, her strength, courage, belief in herself, but also her constant battles with life whether that be through love illness injury her fragmented body that you wrote so beautifully was put back together like a collage I love that line it's completely remarkable and honestly I just think one of the most beautiful homages to an artist I've ever read which is why I have been so excited about this episode for so long 
But I know that your fascination with Frida started long before this. When did you first discover her? I try and remember this and I can't always remember a sort of thunderbolt moment where I was suddenly aware of Frida. I think it was a slight sort of osmosis. I began to be aware of her paintings, but one of the most memorable is, and it's so typical because it's not actually a physical painting, but she was on the side of a bag. (laughs) She was on the side of a Sotheby's bag that for some reason I had. And this is 2006. Yeah. And her face, one of her self-portraits, was along the side of this big cardboard bag. And there's a photo of me with a (laughs) moustache sort of holding up this bag and sort of mimicking her. Yeah. And I remember I must have been very attracted to her. And her paintings are attractive, particularly Mm. her self-portraits. So I think it was around then that I became conscious of her. But the whole sort of, the very fact that my house is, you know, full of Frida and there's this kind of, you know, the walls are blue in the garden and that has been a slow accumulation. It's just part of my life. And it's a known fact with my friends that, you know, they can buy me some Frida socks or (laughs) Frida cushion or, and also like people on Instagram, I don't know, sort of sending me DMs. Have you seen this? There's a new egg cup. Amazing. (laughs) I feel a bit of a tragic. Stop buying shares and Frida merchandise. I know, I know. But when you did discover her, did you want to know more? Did you know about her life already? I knew nothing about her. And that was a good thing in Mm. a way. What I knew about was the portraiture, the self-portraits mainly, the ones that she sort of did in the 40s. And that was all I really knew. I probably, I think I may have watched the movie with Salma Hayek. And then you start reading the biography and then you know, oh my God, what a life, Mm. you know, what a life. And for me, that's always a tension, particularly when an artist, be they a novelist or a painter or a filmmaker or anything, and they're a woman, I'm always very wary of not falling in love too much with the woman and the person and the personality and forgetting the creativity and the skill involved, because I think that happens a lot with women. I totally agree. But I mean, with Frida's work, it's so autobiographical in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's why she makes it easy, Mm. because it is this synthesis of selfhood, persona into her work. Her personal style was her personal painting style. Totally. You know, I found out that she used nail varnish, her own nail varnishes sometimes in her paintings. And that's such a great metaphor really for how she blurred the line between her life and her work so in a way she is an artist that invites you in to her life through her work so you're kind of allowed to be interested in her life but I also think and we can discuss this there was a certain barrier that she would put up through her work which Mm. was a mask it was this is what you can see of me this is what I will control that you can see of me it's alluring it's inviting but it's not the full story yeah no that's so interesting and In the beautiful piece that you wrote, one of my favourite lines is you refer to her as being a writer's dream. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Well, I suppose she was a great self-fabulator. She was married to a man who liked to do that too. (laughs) Lies, nonsense, imagination, fantasy, blended very much with truth. And so as a writer, when, you know, I can only speak personally, when the imaginative world, the unseen world can feel as vivid and as real as the real world, Mm. as I think it was for her, I just felt a kind of kinship. Yeah. But also the very fact that the drama in her life is attractive to a writer, the boldness of herself is attractive to a writer. You you know, you don't really want to write about, well, some people do, boring people, but (laughs) (laughs) I I found her just, you know, this self-inventing person. It's a very appealing idea as a writer because we make people up ourselves and we fragment ourselves into our work too. So yeah, she's a writer's hero. But I think what's amazing about Frida is that she is these characters within a character as well. I mean, you look at her paintings and you see her in traditional dress or you see her in European dress. And I mean, that must be attractive for you as well. Yeah, and the way she understood that we are made up of many selves and she refused to be... I suppose, put in a box or to be told what she was. Yeah, the kind of use of traditional dress is almost like a costume. Yeah. But it's also a political statement. It's, you know, aligning herself with Mexican indigenous culture. It's a kind of leftist statement. But, you know, you can't deny she was somebody who was pretty middle class, 
kind of European background on half of her family's side. And in a way that sometimes certain cultures get appropriated yes. by people who don't have to actually live the difficulties of those cultures. Yes. <laughs> she could maybe be <laughs> accused of that, but I think she was doing it in a way that was productive yeah. and expressive and meant a lot to mm. the people who loved her as well. Mm. And why do you think she resonates with, I think, women particularly so much? Because what's interesting about Frieda is that although she was sort of recognised during her life, it's since she's died that there has been this total resurgence and interest in her work. I know. When I went to the Casa Azul, they told me that it's about 60% of the visitors are women aged between 25 and 40. Oh, wow. And there are so many reasons why she's so attractive. I think... One is the awareness of what women have to do sometimes to be seen or to try and control their narrative, but also her love of fashion and clothing and jewellery and decoration and being feminine and doing that unapologetically Mm. and in a strong way. Also, though, the androgyny of her, you know, the moustache and the masculinity, that makes her appealing there are so many reasons why and and also reasons I don't know why there's a sort of enigma and Mm. her paintings are quite alluring they're quite sexual Mm. she's a an interesting person you might want to know or be but also I think a huge part of it is the pain that she went through in her life the losses that she suffered she had terrible gynecological issues because of a a, a really awful accident she had when she was 18 she had polio so she had a deformed shrunken leg and she dealt with that she had a very tempestuous marriage you know there were so many things and she sort of expressed her pain she didn't bury it and I suppose in the 21st century we're all about sharing our pain yeah yeah and so in a weird way, as inaccessible as she is, as an icon, as an image, she's incredibly accessible. People totally. feel that they, they feel with her. Absolutely. So Frida Kahlo was born in 1907 in Mexico City. However, she always stated that she was born in 1910 to be a child of the revolution because that's when the Mexican revolution started. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about her family and upbringing in Mexico City? Yeah, she had a quite interesting family. Her father was German. Well, his parents were Hungarian Jewish who moved to Germany. And then his sort of adolescence fell apart when his father remarried. And he left Germany and set up in Mexico City. Mm. And that's interesting to me because it feels like like father, like daughter. He reinvented himself. Wilhelm became Guillermo (laughs) and he was a photographer. But, okay, he didn't become a photographer until he met his wife, his second wife, whose father was also a photographer. And he needed a job. And so she said, well, why don't you borrow my dad's camera? And so that's how he became a professional photographer and how Frida learned about sitting for photos and taking photos and using tiny brushes to touch up photos. So yeah, her family, she was uh, one of four sisters and then she had two extra half sisters, Mm. I think. But her father had epilepsy and suffered seizures. Her mother was Spanish, sort of Indian, Mexican. And she was Catholic and very devout and quite homely housewifely. And she married this like basically atheist Hungarian Jew (laughs) who'd run away from Germany. It was quite an unusual combo. And Frida was very close to him. Yeah. It was kind of quite evident to all of them that she was the favorite daughter, but they had a lot in common. Why do you think that was? Well, I think when she got polio, when she was six, her life did change. She was very outgoing before that. She was quite a tomboy. She was quite tough. But that changed things. She was bedridden. She developed an imaginary friend who lived with her her whole life. She talked about her imaginary friend and that duality of self. There was a sort of Frida in the house and then the Frida climbing trees and Mm. being wild. And I think her father understood what it was like to have an illness. And he was melancholy and quite sort of broody and not broody brooding (laughs) he was very broody he wanted um yeah I think they just they had a simpatico yeah she definitely loved her mother and was devastated when her mother died and her mother taught her quite useful skills embroidery cooking keeping a lovely house and Frida was very fastidious about her Mm. cleanly house but um I think she felt her father was on her intellectual level. Yeah. That's so interesting. What do you think that those photographs that he took of her kind of reveal about their special relationship? It's just so interesting that she would, you know, 
as his seizures got worse, would be his assistant and accompany him in the street, holding the camera, holding the equipment, helping him sort of touch up the photos. I guess it was just a case of having a father who encouraged her. That's quite unique. And, Mm. you know, she was one of only 35 girls to go to the 2000 strong college the yeah. preparatoria as yeah. it's known and he was all for it yeah her mother didn't want her to do it but he was like no she's she was kind of like the great white hope of the family she was the kind of son yeah which is again really interesting about the kind of fluidity of her selfhood in terms of being masculine feminine male female mm. and he was hugely supportive of her always I think I saw this in the um, the V&A exhibitions, but, you know, when she was young, because she had a different size leg, she had a limp. Yeah. Um, she used to draw her casts with butterflies and everything and on them. And I just love that kind of way of making something that is so painful and so something that is you constantly remind yourself every day if you have a cast or something, actually mm. creating beauty on that is such yeah. a lovely thing. Yeah, there's a real defiance to her, I think. And at school, even... So once she recovered from the polio as much as she could... She was very direct at school. She would complain about teachers if she didn't think they were good enough. She yeah. was expelled. You know, <laughs> she wasn't easy, but it was like she refused to let that disease that really did strike her down, strike her down permanently. So she became quite used to suffering and pain mm. and chronic pain at a very young age. But it really did make her go into herself, I think, mm. imaginatively because she couldn't go outside and she was being made to recover as an invalid. So it was all in her mind. And do you think that what was happening politically at that time, you know, living through the revolution, that that inspired her at all, do you think? I don't know. I mean, certainly as she got older, I'm thinking of her as a sort of 11, 12 year old right now. But when the dictatorship fell, it actually made her family much poorer because her father as a photographer was getting loads of money from the dictatorship to take kind of patrimony photos mm. of sites in Mexico. So <laughs> the Mexican revolution didn't actually help them on, <laughs> on a domestic level. But I think on a macro scale, it definitely changed her, like the idea of Mexicanism and respecting indigenous culture and elevating it above European and Western American values, definitely. And I think the college where she attended was, you know, a sort of melting pot of that revolutionary zeal. But then it was also a canvas which was constantly being tussled over because then it went back to conservative government and Mm. then they kind of scrubbed off all the kind of workers' murals. So it was like constant revolution going on. And you mentioned, you know, she went to this incredible school, La Preparatoria, and she was in this group of girls and they were such forces. But obviously when she was 18, something terrible happened. Yeah. I mean, I think this was one of the defining moments of her life. She was on a a street bus and with her then boyfriend, Alejandro, and a streetcar crashed in to their bus. And he did get injured, but she got really, really injured her spine was shattered her pelvis her foot the most probably symbolic injury was that one of the handrails went through her pelvis and through her vagina and it is true that for some reason her clothes came off in the accident and she was covered in blood but she'd been sitting next to someone who'd been carrying gold paint gold dust yeah and it exploded And so there's this 18-year-old Frida lying nude, covered in blood, covered in gold. I mean, it's so, it's so... (laughs) You couldn't make it up. I know, you couldn't make it up. And she was laid out on a billiard table and they thought she was going to die. I mean, she was completely wrecked. Yeah. And I think it changed her whole life. Mm. And, you know, her friend who kept her medical record said he knew that she had at least 32 operations through her life subsequent to that one. And this was 1925. I mean, the circumstances were not as good as they are today. No, exactly. And I think people have often said who knew her that she lived dying. She lived with death from then on. She called it la pelona, death. And, you know, just as like Catholics make jokes about... (laughs) Catholicism or (laughs) Jewish people make jokes about you know their Jewishness she did it with death like death was her companion from then on in and she said to her boyfriend at the time my friends became women slowly I became old in instants it was like an overnight aging she just had this accelerated realization that death was going to come to us all but death was kind of like there with her Mm. and her body was wrecked But it's interesting because actually in the piece you say that she refused to be a 
victim and she was this kind of indomitability of her. Right. And I think she just had that in her. She had like cat's luck. She just kept having awful things happen and then <laughs> yeah. getting back up again. Amazing. And That's I th- strength. Yeah. And I think there was just, maybe it was like a rebirth, but there was the Frida before the accident. Then there was the Frida after the accident. And the Frida after the accident was a much more, strangely enough, sober or somber self, but that as a result, this forceful humor, this desire for life this hunger this refusal to let it define her sprung out of it and she wasn't having any of it she was not going to be defined by that accident although she acknowledged it was one of the greatest things on her life and one of the things about being bedbound is that actually she started taking up painting because I think that's yeah. also a good thing to remember that she didn't really have formal training as a no painter. she wanted to be a doctor yeah and one of the thoughts she had was like well now I'm injured maybe I can make a living drawing medical textbooks wow. which is interesting when you look at some of her paintings because there is a kind of anatomical Definitely. exactitude and she just like paints pelvises sometimes or parts of the body even trees or something it's yeah. so scientific right there's a minutiae to it she didn't think of painting as a career at all, but she was well skilled. I think, you know, it's easy to, some of her paintings are naive or quite folkloric. Mm. She knew about Piero della Francesca and Bosch was one of her favorites. Like she knew the canon as it were. Yeah. But yeah, the painting of herself came about because she was bedbound. There was a mirror above her bed. They fitted one, her mother's idea. Thanks, mum. <laughs> you know, here's some paint, have a go. And that's how she sort of, I suppose, began to manifest that interest in herself and to keep herself in other people's minds by painting herself, even though she couldn't be in the rooms with them. Totally. And I mean, just looking at these, you know, early portraits, they're so serene. I mean, portrait of Alicia Gallant, for example, is that's very much based on someone like Botticelli and her self-portrait in a velvet dress is, they're just so beautiful. It's really interesting to see how, I don't know, she depicted these people and herself, especially in her inner circle. That's what she was kind of painting yeah. at the beginning. I'm really interested in the velvet dress portrait because that was a gift that she gave to Alejandro, who she'd been in the accident with. And for me, that's like her first use of herself as a love token, as a kind of way of binding herself to her lover through a sort of remembrance of, you know, I'm in pain. I need you. Here I am. You can carry me with you wherever you are. And she's really feminized herself. Like she looks very kind of girlish, but she's also surrounded by darkness. And Mm. there's a hand there at the bottom, like, please take my hand. Please remember me. And she did that throughout her life. She gave portraits of herself to friends abroad or lovers or her husband to like, kind of like neurotically in a way, like, here I am. Remember me by this yeah and I think about it through a sort of writing prism and I write to make my friends see me as who I really am that's so interesting and it's like an offering it's like my way of understanding the world or my way of like expressing myself in my truest way and I think Frida does that with her paintings totally also what's really interesting about her work is that they are very small and they are these icon-like works and they're almost these objects of desire you know these like you say these tokens of love yeah and also kind of talking about earlier this inherent catholicism that she must have grown up with as well yeah it's interesting that she's almost putting herself in this religious again celestial these maybe even you know closeness to death immortalizing herself in these portraits yes no absolutely and I think it's interesting that most of the paintings are little, apart from a, one or two. And I wonder, I mean, obviously there were practical reasons for that, because if you're lying in bed, you can't like yeah. <laughs> gigantic canvas <laughs> hovering above you about to crush you. Although yes, probably she'd get back up. That does make sense. <laughs> yeah. she probably does. Yeah, she'd just like crawl from out under it. <laughs> I will not die. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. There is this devotional sense to them. Yeah, absolutely. And then so... After that, that's sort of 1926, 1927. In 1927, she actually, you know, going back to this idea that she was very involved in politics and she was very educated. In 1927, she joins the Mexican Communist Party and then yeah. a year later, she meets Diego Rivera. Yeah, who her was second accident. Her second she accident. she describes him. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the both of them made up lovely stories, whether or not they're true, of like how they met. I mean, I do find it quite odd that he definitely met her when she was about 15 and he was... Because he's also 20, 21 years yeah, older than her? Yeah, he's a lot older than her. He was painting murals at the uh, college where she studied. Oh, yeah, um, of course. Because he was mega famous. Yeah. Like... He was the kind of Picasso of his day. Yeah, definitely. I read that when MoMA 
wanted uh, they offered him a one man retrospective and the only other person who'd had that was Matisse so he was like yeah. globally I think respected. We actually, it's interesting actually because we so much when we talk about artist couples mm. she's actually now the famous one it's so interesting to me this because she is so popular she outsells tickets, if you like, in terms of exhibitions more than Monet. And yet, if you look at auction prices and figures like that, she doesn't make the money. Oh, wow. And I find that really interesting. And there's lots of reasons for that. Issues of supply. There's just not many of them. But also those self-portraits are the ones that people want. They're just not for sale. Mm. But that's, again, really interesting. But that's yeah. a kind of more mercenary way of looking at it. But it, nevertheless, these were people who wanted to make their living through art. Yeah. But at the time, Diego was a superstar, but Frida's legacy has definitely permeated way beyond anything. And, you know, I think it should be said that Diego was a tricky figure in a way, was a deep womanizer, but he was an ardent, constant encourager of Frida, a support of Frida. And he thought she was better than him. He thought she was the most brilliant painter ever. Yeah. And... I think that's really interesting. She moved from a father who was hugely supportive to a husband who was hugely supportive, but we can get into their their marriage. But um, <laughs> yeah, early doors, they got married very quickly. Mm. And she was young. She yeah. was like 20 and he was 40 and had mm. been married once before, you know, but I think apparently her father was quite happy with it because they had no money and they're like, great, Diego's <laughs> loaded. He'll, he'll pay for everything. Her mother was like, no, this is... <laughs> terrible he's so old he's so ugly yeah because he wasn't particularly didn't they call them the elephant and the dove yes and he used to nickname himself frog toad you know i'm your lovely frog toad and he has a slightly frog-like aspect um but he must have been so charismatic he was he was very intelligent humorous charming Mm. you know he was a match for her and they both were people who were easily bored and they never (laughs) bored each other you know there was that restlessness in both of them and art came first for him and so I think she didn't have formal training but by watching Diego being an artist in public and private was probably an education in itself totally I never even really thought of that but then I mean because he was so big he went to you know he was invited by the Rockefellers to paint murals in New York and they did actually travel around the US quite a lot but I think that was quite hard for Frida yeah I sort of see the America thing for Frida in three stages there's San Francisco New York and then Detroit was this all one trip they came back and forth a bit and they were all because of Diego's commissions in San Francisco, she actually painted quite a lot, but mm. she did say that the Americans were like unbaked rolls. She was so rude. <laughs> and she described, she, she said that Detroit was a shabby old village. I was like, <laughs> okay. So she had a bit of a rough time in those places, but she did actually paint quite a lot in San Fran, not in Detroit yeah. and nor in New York. But in New York, she actually quite enjoyed New York. And she was such a spectacle because obviously by now she was, you know, wearing the Tawana outfits, those lovely tops the big petticoats the jewelry I love this photo of her which is on a Manhattan rooftop and she's wearing a dress and you can see all the um, buildings in the background yeah yeah it's the most fantastic thing ever it is it is wonderful and of course she was wearing those because they masked her quote deformity of course yeah because when you look at the body like that in squares in geometric shapes you just don't see the let's say the windy lines underneath yeah and no one had seen anything like Frida but of course New York is such a theatrical place Mm. it's such a flamboyant place she she didn't fit in but she had a better time there she met like-minded people she loved going to the movies she loved Marx Brothers movies and horror films big for her (laughs) but let's just say the book ending of San Fran and Detroit were quite miserable for her partly because Detroit was just she had um well First, a failed abortion. She thought she should get rid of a baby because yeah. it was medically not viable and then decided she was going to try and keep it and then miscarried anyway. So I think she felt she missed Mexico. Yeah. Diego was being garlanded and loved. He loved America. I bet he did. Also interesting, like all the conflicts of communism and capitalism yeah. and him painting paintings for ca- murals for he capitalists. He also hid Trotsky as well in his house in Kazarazov. Yeah, yeah. And he'd been kicked out of the Communist Party by now. Okay. But they were still you know communists yeah but it's interesting because I've been reading about Frida's time in the US and people are saying that it actually it was incredible for her artwork it suddenly became so loaded there was so much more passion that was going through it you're so right and I think one of the paintings she painted in San Francisco called Luther Burbank what a name he was called (laughs) Luther Burbank he was a horticulturalist and she paints him half man half tree amazing and I think that's when you start seeing the surrealism yeah although she would deny she was a surrealist but that kind of ambition and exploration into fantasy 
and presenting surreal or fantastical elements in her work started to come there. Yeah. And she did paint quite a lot in secret because she was always very, you know, coy about her painting. She didn't sort of, you know, strut around with it mm. in this period. I think in the 40s, she started to get more recognition. Yeah. But she did. It was a rich time for her, mainly, I suppose, in Detroit from pain. Yeah. You know, th this very painful painting that she painted. Well, more than one. But also the way that she documented her infertility as well I think you know Henry Ford Hospital again that alluding to the Ford family in America and that hate for them but also this totally surreal but also I think very real painting because I mean how many times have you seen a nude I mean especially I was thinking of the Virgin Mary and how many times she's been fixed in the history of art and actually mm. how perfect it looks oh and yes it's like, well no 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 no. <laughs> a birth is not like that it doesn't <laughs> no. look like that and the way that she's actually depicted herself with this miscarriage with these umbilical cords with all these fears and really kind of surreal horrors in a way but just the reality of what it looks like blood does spill from you and no, that's absolutely. what re reality is absolutely and it's quite rare that you would see a nude a woman's nude body like that it's not beautiful you can yeah. tell it's been painted by a woman who you know actually understands yeah. what it might feel like to be lying on a bed with blood gushing out from between yeah. your legs it's a very arresting image and I suppose that does come from her as well knowledge of of Mexican folk painting which is very bloody it's quite theatrical it's quite over the top it's quite gory and that's why they're little because if they were big you'd sort of be very yes, intimidated by yeah. them then again you can see the use of like anatomical drawings in it you know the pelvis and it's very it's very narrative I've never seen a sort of handful of works by her in the flesh mm. but when I see it it also becomes very physical for the viewer because you really actually imagine your body twisted in this certain way and she depicts like the sort of the, the body in the Henry Ford Hospital it is twisted it is very uncomfortable and mm. you almost as a woman you put yourself in that position in a way yeah I think it's so different seeing the paintings in the flesh yeah because of that and it is like you say it's quite hard because yeah. a lot of them aren't allowed to leave Mexico and when you do get to see one, it is quite alarming. It's a very different experience to seeing it in a book because she's quite merciless when she decides to show you what pain is like and yeah. you do feel it in the body. Yeah. And then you said that Diego was her second accident and I know that they didn't have the happiest of marriages and actually yeah. they divorced and then remarried. <laughs> you know, I just don't know. I, I think the Diego Frida marriage, I don't know if you can say it was unhappy because it was so fruitful yeah, as well. Yeah, so true, so like true. It, it was such a strange marriage. Like, <laughs> it was like she knew what he was. I feel like, so he had an affair with her sister in oh 1934 <laughs> to five, which, you know, broke her. And he felt, you know, I don't know what he thought he was doing. But <laughs> even after that, she writes a letter to him saying, I, I love you more than my own skin. She knows that Diego gives her something. He is life. She says Diego is life. And yes, you can look at it like, mm, this is a bit of a strange element of Frida. Is it weak? Is it self-abasing? Is she putting herself second to this man? But I think she felt that this man gave her so much. He was her child. She often called him Mi Nino, but he was her father figure. She, he was everything. He believed in her more than anyone. And she knew about all the affairs quite a lot. And he knew about her affairs. Yes, yeah. So I guess they just had this weird understanding of each other he physically built two houses that were joined together with a bridge and they would visit each other they might have breakfast in her house and he'd go to his and she'd know he'd be off like with some tourist and usually a woman who'd come to sort of meet him and he was always fine with her female love affairs because she was bisexual yeah but he hated any men like he would just like it was very old-fashioned and annoying yeah well, she had the affair with Trotsky. To she had the affair with Trotsky. Get back at him. Yeah. And some other really quite good looking men as well. <laughs> Not that Trotsky wasn't handsome, but like some real fitties. Like she was just like, yeah. I mean, he plunged her to the depths of misery, mm. but also elevated her and gave her some kind of nourishment that I think people on the outside of it just couldn't understand. Yeah. And yeah, I just, yeah, it's seems to me to be like one of the defining well, the defining relationship of her life, without doubt. Absolutely. But the way that I think, you know, this year in 1939, where she does create yes. the two Freedas, this is a kind of real, I think for me, this is her most loaded mm. self-portrait because she's really 
again, you mentioned earlier, she had this imaginary friend. There was always this aspect of duality in her absolutely. life. Yeah, absolutely. I think she she understood the duality of life and death. Yeah. But also the need to be many selves that we have, particularly as women. We do tend to perform more than men in order to survive. I think she knew about performance as survival. She knew about splitting herself in order to survive. But it also gave her artistic alegria, happiness. It gave her so much to play with, with the idea of her multiple selves. But with the two Fridas... Yeah, I mean, she's got her traditional European self on the left in, you know, quite Victorian garb with a very open heart in her chest, a broken heart. And then on the other side in her Tawana traditional wear, holding a little miniature portrait of Diego, of course, yeah, around her kind of genital area and blood on the skirt. And yeah, I think it's a sort of, it's quite defiant. She's holding hands with herself. The only person she can ever truly rely on is herself. Yeah. Or herselves, you know, her imaginary selves, her fantasy selves. I think that's why that exhibition at the VNA as well was so poignant because it really did explore actually how she physically made herself up, but also how she presented herself, not in just her paintings, but I think even when you look at photographs of her, it's so interesting because she is almost performing for the camera in this way. Yeah. I mean... It's not that there was a cult of Frida then, but it sort of worked for her. The performative theatrical elements of Mexican art, of the dress, of the various cultures she could borrow from, just served her well. But she did understand about constructing identity, that it's not potentially native. It is something that we build on and that we can change. And she had to be adaptable. She had to be adaptable at six when she got polo. She had to be adaptable at 18. She had to be adaptable. And I think the affair with her sister that Diego had was a turning point. And of course, they did divorce four years later, only to remarry the next year. But... (laughs) I think she was documenting her personal development. That's such an awful phrase, but through painting and and understanding that, you know, nothing stays the same and we change constantly. But also that idea of pain and the work, actually, when they did get remarried, that was in 1943, Diego of My Mind, which was at the V&A exhibition, which was in this insanely incredible gilded frame as well. It's this amazing portrait of her in traditional dress, but also Diego is physically tattooed on her mind. It's almost like beyond love. She can't, she doesn't just want him next to her, she wants him in her. Yeah, she she can't get him any closer than wedging him in her mind. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's very obsessive. She was very possessive, I think. Yeah. And the cult of Diego and Frida kind of worked for her as much as for him, you know. I mean, he was a madman for press. He liked the publicity and stuff. But I think only (laughs) later on in her life, maybe the last decade of her life, she understood it and understood, you know, maybe how to use this crazy marriage for her own... No, that's not fair, actually. That makes it sound like she sort of just co-opted her partner... (laughs) for um artistic use but then again maybe she did maybe they both did but also she was she was gaining a bit of recognition at this time as well she had an exhibition in new york and then she had an exhibition in paris that i know marcel duchamp kind of helped organize but again this was in kind of 1938 and war was coming and actually that kind of got in the way of so much that could have happened as well in paris and surrealism as well yeah it's kind of cut off yeah it's hard to imagine if the war had happened what would have frieda's career been like because there was yeah you're right there was this spike and then it you know the war came and then she died you know nine years after the war ended but yeah and I think at this point it is interesting even though they remarried they were separate really and they were kind of living their own lives but sort of with that sort of umbilical cord attaching them but she painted some of her best work yes she wasn't being Diego's wife (laughs) yes yes I think she understood that she had to do things on her own terms Mm. not just you know, she had to walk the walk as well. And I think this period was just so fertile, ironically. But also, um, like you said, the, the, there was this constant also pain that was happening in her life. And even the work Broken Column, where you literally mm. see this metal bar shoved in her yeah. body. And it comes up just below the chin, which I think is a really, again, when you look at the work, it's very physical. Because you really feel that you can't, yeah. not being able to move your head is a very yeah. limiting and horrible thing. Yeah, and I think... The thing people often said about her was that she had a very queenly bearing. She was very upright. And this painting, if you're having your chin held, you're kind of, you've got that queenly chin raise. Yeah. But 
behind her on in that painting the broken column there's just this barren land and I think this sort of awareness of her dualities she had such abundance such fruitfulness in various ways in her work mainly in her self-expression but it was there because there was also a barrenness or a, a lack which she felt throughout her adult life of not having children although I think in some letters to her doctors it's like she knows it might not be the best thing to have the kids but in this painting there is again an allusion to that barrenness behind her and her beautiful body is riddled with nails and there's a quite christ-like shroud along the bottom and also maybe even kind of allusion to yeah. Saint Sebastian or someone well she did that as well didn't she with the wounded deer she portrays herself as riddled with arrows and it's something I've got a Louise Bourgeois she did the same with a woman's body probably her yeah. own just shot through with arrows it's quite sacrificial but I think it's not wise to just take all of those images and say well this is what Frida thought fully of herself yeah I think there's play involved I think there's an ironic you know here I am again trapped <laughs> in this bloody corset but yeah. I think there was that wasn't the only thing going on in her life. There was friendship and activity. And well, you see from the vibrancy of this, there was so much yeah. life in her, I think, with the colours yeah. that she was using. Yeah, and I think, you know, she just, I think at her last exhibition, she was like wheeled out on a bed. You know, she just didn't want to miss it. They said, well, you can't come. It was in Mexico City and she yeah. came out in a bed and of course there were like pictures of Diego pinned to the, <laughs> to the bedpost. And she's like having a tequila, <laughs> you know. But it, it's so hard when you talk about someone who is so iconic and by that I mean this slight mask-like yes. persona that we project our hopes, our desires, our beliefs onto to remember that there was a much more malleable, fluid person underneath it because she's doing it. She's controlling what we see yes. and what we think of her. But there is one painting that really sticks with me, which she painted in 1945 called The Mask. Yeah. And I saw it in Milan so I got a ticket the first ticket of the day I got to go and you know I don't mind saying I actually cried when I walked in because I was on my own and I this is the first time I ever actually got to see a painting but oh hers, my god yeah because even when I went to Mexico they weren't there because they were moving around and they were so overwhelming in the flesh and I felt quite overwhelmed because I was on my own in this room and there was just so many Fridas just looking at me and there she was I felt oh my god I see you hello it was very odd and then in the last room and the last painting is called The Mask and she's got a mask on. She's holding up a kind of Greek mask over her face with this really weird purple straw hair. And you can see her realise through the holes, the mouth is downturned. She's got this perfectly manicured hand with a gorgeous aquamarine ring, of course, like always accessorising, <laughs> even in Greek tragedy. And it's really shocking because it's like, hey, this is the mask to, that tells you what I'm really going through. Whereas all the other paintings that are her face as a mask are like, I'm strong, I'm in control, I'm abundant, I'm glorious, I'm intimidating, I'm perfect. Well, you know, perfect in her flaws. Whereas this painting was like, no, I have to hide my sorrows so much and this is why I paint because I refuse to be defined by those sorrows, but they underline everything. And it was a very wow. disturbing painting. And yeah. I, I, I thought, wow, you never see this on the side of a tote bag. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I think that's it is a risk that people run with Frida is like, you know, she is this wonderful feminist icon of survival and strength. But let's remember that there was a lot of sorrow and pain. And yeah. yes, she used it, but it was a real life as well. But even though she's physically literally documenting this disintegration because mm. also she's there's almost this premonition of her own death in 1954 she knows it's coming like you've been talking throughout mm. death is always on her mind in a way definitely her best biographer Hayden Herrera has believes that Frida did actually kill herself by taking an overdose of her medicines um she gave Diego a wedding anniversary a month in advance the day before wow, so it's like maybe she did decide enough's enough yeah but Physically, she knew the end was coming, whether or not she forced death's hand or not. But one of her works in 1954 is Viva la Vida. Viva la Vida, yeah. Long Live Life. Yeah, which she signed eight days before she died, obviously in blood red paint. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was an appetite there for life. But also when she died, she says, I hope never to return. <laughs> I think she oh was done. Yeah. yeah. But then you never know. What would she say the next day? She'd be like, let's go out, you yeah. know, wheel me down the street. And I, actually, just as a sort of tangent, there was a recording of her voice. They think it's Frida. 
there's only one evidence that it's of her voice and um there's lots of Diego giving lectures and stuff and people had sent it to me and like oh my god did you see this article they think it's Frida and I was so nervous to play it but I played it and I was like oh my god it was the most beautiful voice it's so melodious quite deep quite hoarse yeah uh, it was just amazing and I think that's a tangent but she knew perhaps the end was coming and you know only managed to well she painted 200 paintings that they know exist yeah do you think she knew that she would be a star I don't know if that was one of her main aims yeah of course I think in the things I've read that she wrote to people she was very interested in people and she was dedicated to the work and expressing herself and as I've said earlier definitely understood the power of image and iconography and dress to kind of create something that would endure that was immediately recognizable in any instance yeah and yeah like now we all you need to see is a pair of eyebrows and a flower crown and you're like oh Frida yeah. you know that's that's skills like yeah. that is very skillful in it's terms branding of branding well. exactly yeah. but maybe it's just that sort of fits our 21st century need for identifiable logos and messages and icons and I don't know whether she had grand ambitions to outlive Diego or yeah. anything like that yeah. I don't know I feel wrong speaking on her behalf of course, of but course. like I think she obviously was getting a taste of fame. But again, let's look at the money that was being exchanged for Frida paintings versus Diego paintings. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you're faced with those, albeit mercantile realities, they can affect what you might think you're going to leave behind mm. once you die. I think she'd be very surprised to see herself on egg cups and <laughs> pairs of socks. But then again, maybe not. Maybe she understood in an innate way. Because let's remember, like, yes, it was all constructed and deliberate, this wonderful kind of dress and all of that. But I think that was just a natural gift she had. Yeah. You know, people said of her who knew her, not an immediate gobsmacking beauty. I beg to differ because I've seen videos of her and she was absolutely oh, gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful, yeah. But I think she just had a sexiness. She had an energy, which do come shimmering off the portraits when you stand in front of them she just was sexy and yeah. I think that's not to be undervalued and I think sex sells I don't know <laughs> like you know and it's interesting that someone like Madonna is really uh, you know she's probably the premier collector of Frida oh wow that's so interesting yeah she was the one I think when Frida broke the million dollar barrier on her own works it was it was Madonna buying them Wow. Yeah. And I know that you've obviously made the pilgrimage to Casa Azul. Yeah. What was that like? Did you feel like you got to know her better? How many times have you been before? I've been twice. I went once on holiday with my mum and, you know, we both loved it. But it was very much a sort of pilgrimage with, with everyone, which is fine. And then the second time was with Harper's on yeah. behalf of the V&A, which was such a privilege because there was only about 20 of us in the house and 2,000 people go through every day. And it's a gorgeous courtyard garden and, you know, thick adobe walls. Yeah. And she was born there and came in and out of that place and died there, but didn't live there all the time. And the rest of the journalists went to the next thing. But I stayed behind with the photographer, Harry, to take a couple of photos. And it was quite eerie because, you know, it's a space full of tourists and fans. And then to be in her bedroom alone where she died... It was very moving. I was sort of like quietly dealing with it. And I turned to Harry and he was crying. Oh, <laughs> but he knew, he hadn't known much about Frida before. But yeah. it's a very peaceful place. And you sort of think, God, here is this woman whose image is all over the place on trainers and tote bags everywhere, who painted paintings that people really love, but perhaps have not been established in the you know late 20th century canon as much as others in terms of surrealism or whatever. Yeah who did her best and did it so well and died here so young. It was just very, it was a sad moment really. But, and I swear, like I felt if I turn around, I think she's going to be staring at me because it was just so palpable. <laughs> but that's probably because I'm a writer. <laughs> Frida would appreciate it. Like, you know, making up a bit. Yeah, And then I turned around and the ghost of Frida was standing there. I do like that in your most recent book, The Confession, you did... Um, make a note to actually have the two women go to a free yeah. color exhibition. Yeah, in 1982, the Whitechapel Gallery put on an exhibition with Tina Madotti, who incidentally was probably the woman who introduced her to Diego. 
Yeah, and I have my characters go there. And I mean, it's mainly just for my benefit. <laughs> I don't know, I, I kind of read into that quite a lot. I was like, the power dynamic. Yeah. They're looking at the self of where you are in your life yeah. and that painfulness. Yeah. And, the- and it really does, I mean, in that novel, it does speak, the works of Frida speak to preoccupations of women artists. I think, you know, babies, motherhood, creativity, love, sex how you fit it all in, how you become a public artist. Because, you know, that is something that Frida was coming to terms with. She was shy. You know, Diego was like, you know, making pronouncements. But she was beginning to understand the cult of Frida, the power of her theatrical dressing, the iconography that she could maybe lean on, and the the power of photography. Yeah. What do you think Frida Kahlo's taught you? Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, it's really hard to say. I tell you, sometimes I just look at a painting of hers, a portrait of hers, and I feel calmer. Like, I just feel like... We have got a burning candle with Frida's face (laughs) on it looking at us right now. (laughs) She's definitely been sort of tarted up in that one. She sort of looks like a Jesus figure in that. But one of her, like, actual paintings, I just... I don't know. She gives me confidence. She says, I paint my own reality. I am my own muse. She mind her own life. I don't always, I do mind my own life, but I, you know, reconfigure it. I'm not so directly autobiographical, but she never gave up. And she had a quite black humor. And there's just so much I admire in her. She's taught me just, you know, to believe in myself, I suppose. That's such a pat phrase, but she, she expressed herself regardless of whether it was going to be a success or a failure. And I think that that's true artistry, really. Absolutely. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if you could say something to Frida or ask her something, what would it be? I'd ask her if she'd share a tequila with me. (laughs) (laughs) Just sit sit in the garden and just clink our glasses. In your cabin that is... Frida Blue and your ping pong table that is Frida Blue as well. And I know, it's just tragic. So much Frida Blue everywhere. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Jessie Burton, for coming on the podcast today. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 15th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant author Jessie Burton on the great Frida Kahlo. It was such an insight to an incredible life and career that, as Jessie mentions, we so often see reproduced elsewhere. If you have enjoyed my conversation with Jessie, then do not miss out on her excellent novels. The Confession, which came out in autumn last year, even has the characters visit a Frida Kahlo exhibition. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Eddie Clifford, and if you have been enjoying this podcast so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a 1,000 original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to curated selection of ones to watch. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my favourite activities and thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £73 per year and for those under 30, it's £45. Just go to artfund.org forward slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.